Good morning. We have gathered as God's people to worship this day. Uh, for our call to worship, I've taken a passage from the book of Philippians that points us to the character of Jesus. And one of the things I want to say through the course of the day is that um, Jesus is what the Old Testament is about. If you want to know what the gospel is about, don't look at your pastor. 
I'm doing the best I can, but I'm not there. Don't look at the church. Most of us are doing the best we can. But look to Jesus. And so uh, we'll be reading from Philippians chapter 2. I've set it up responsively. Uh, Let's meditate on the person of Jesus as we uh, speak these words. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of all of that that went ahead, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and even under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let us sing together hymn number 426, stand as you're able, my faith looks up to thee.
Well, I'm happy to welcome each of you as we worship here. First of all, those of you on site, as we've gathered here, one heart, one voice, and to share communion, as well as those who across our live stream are recorded, let us capture that moment and bring it to your space. I encourage you, uh, even online, as we celebrate communion today, you may want to take a moment and prepare elements right where you are so that we can participate um, in that way. Well, it's been a very busy week. Um, I try to avoid talking about the great leadership of celebration, but uh, this week, the staff chili cook-off, uh, raising money for Feed My Starving Children and for sending some of our students, including celebration students, to Spain this summer. I will mention that it was a celebration person who won the chili cook-off. So for Maryland's chili, uh, I just encourage her in whatever she's doing. It was an ultimate crack chicken chili that included bacon and ranch dressing. How do you like that? Pretty amazing. Uh, we were able to raise nearly $1,500 for Feed My Starving Children, an upcoming event where we will pack meals to send overseas, and $750 for our students heading to Spain this summer. So. It's fun to be together. It's fun to work together in things that extend the glory of the gospel. Uh, this morning, after the service, we'll gather as we usually do for coffee, cookies, munchies, donuts, and such, a time to fellowship, and then at 10.30, I will do my usual follow-up with Pastor Bill, a great time to talk about, ask questions about the sermon or other things you want to be um, just approach me. It's kind of an open uh, mic moment. Uh, I will be happy to talk about, I've had some folks ask, perhaps you've seen or heard from friends about events at Asbury University uh, over the past several days. On Wednesday, February 8th, they began their usual Wednesday chapel at 10 a.m. and it has not stopped. It's very, very interesting. It has continued around the clock. It's been marked by prayer and praise. There's been very little preaching, which is very typical at the beginning of a work like this. Many of you are aware that I did my doctoral studies in the history of spiritual awakening. So I've got particular interest and background here. And I've put a lot of resources for you to kind of sort through this. If you're wondering, uh, on that blog post, there's information, there's reflections, uh, historical accounts. I love the Dutch prayer revival of 1857. You need to get on my blog and read about that. It started at a Dutch reformed church in Manhattan. Um, I'll be happy to talk more and as we follow up with that, but I'll also be praying that God might guide and move in ways that only he can. That's the difference between a work of people like Mark Twain writes about in Tom Sawyer, you know, that uh, kind of human-centered revival. And yet there's cycles of God moving in power, and that's my prayer and my hope with that. Now, a couple of slides. Um, <clears throat> we'll begin this week for Lent, uh, two additional times to gather, to hear the Word of God, pray together, and take communion in about a 20 or 30 minute time. There'll be an early morning, 7.30 a.m., and then an afternoon just before our community dinner 
We're calling this pause, about 30 minutes of reflection to be a part of our Ash Wednesday process. That also points to what we'll do uh, this coming Wednesday here, an Ash Wednesday gathering after community uh, night and the dinner. Uh, we'll share a brief reflection, we'll sing together some, and then be marked with the ashes. I'll be preaching, and so I want to kind of dig into what that means and how that can guide us for the next 40 days. Um, do stay up to speed. I've got a slide with three upcoming events. Um, in early March, uh, Dr. Frank Spires, an uh, emeritus professor from Calvin University, will be doing a presentation after the dinner on a Wednesday night called The End of Art. In a fascinating way, because I've seen this, he looks through the art and artists, mostly paintings, drawings, that sort of thing. So all you have to do is view. And he talks about how ideas affect art. And it's a very helpful way to get a sense of why is our world so different now? It's because the ideas are different. And you can see it in art. It's like, any of you have heard me talk about Carl Truman, it's like Carl Truman in pictures. You'll love it. So be aware of that. The Rehoboth School Choir will be here on Sunday night, March 26. We're glad to host that for our area. And then later on in April, uh, an ensembles a concert by the Holland Symphony Orchestra. We're glad to host uh, community uh, groups like that to be a part of things that fit well with us, and what God has called us to do and be. So that's life at Heart of Wyke and Celebration. It's been a great week. We've got a, a busy upcoming week with Ash Wednesday, the uh, passing of Marion Hoffman on Tuesday, and others who are um, in, in real need of prayer. I spent a phone conversation with Fred uh, Walters in Jenison, and, and his situation with Sarah Lynn is in a challenging space. Spoke with um, Mary Louise early this morning, and Nigeria, which is always a challenging place, just got more challenging this past week. Um, so we want to pray for our missionaries there. But that's to come. We'll do that in prayer. Now we need to encourage our hearts with the truth of the gospel. And I love this particular question. It's question 86 in the Heidelberg Catechism. Here it is. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, there's the gospel. Why then should we bother to do good works together? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also restoring us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits, so that he may be praised through us, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be one to Christ. That's the gospel, and that's how it bears fruit in our lives. We've believed that across the centuries. That's a, one expression. We lay hold of that same thing. Hymn number 859, Be Thou My Vision. Let that be the vision as we stand and sing together.
Amen. And have a seat if you would. Uh, we will pray. I have some comments to focus us, our time of prayer, and then the Lord's Prayer. And at the end of the Lord's Prayer, I'll have Miss Janet take um, uh, the kids off to the children's ministry downstairs. Uh, we'll be having communion, so I'm going to shorten some earlier things. But two things that struck my mind as I try to look and see the world and discern where God is at work and how he's called us. Uh, a personal moment. On April 16th in 2007, my family had just distributed after being gathered in Charlotte for um, the passing, the funeral of, of my father-in-law, Marilyn's dad. And on that day, April 16th, our son was back at Virginia Tech, the same day that one gunman with two attacks killed 32 people and himself. I remember being at work and watching I was doing IT work, we could watch the whole internet collapse around Blacksburg, Virginia in the midst of that day as the news came out. In that time, I'll tell you friends, I, it seems like we're now better at responding and limiting death with first responder training and support. I'm thankful for that. We may perhaps even be limiting access with new laws and protections, though some folks will just pick up a hammer, it seems. But I've got to say this, as I observe the growing number and the ongoing nature of these deaths and events, it makes me think that something is broken that can't be fixed simply with better first responder training or laws. I'm asking myself questions like that. Why do so many people now feel like killing other people is a legitimate way to deal with their frustration or personal pain? Why does that make sense in a way that it didn't even 30 years ago? Why do people express themselves by killing innocent others? What does that tell me about someone else's heart? Third question, why does that step make sense to so many people in our country today? It's hard to know and to say. I've talked a lot lately about how God's people need to be praying and acting, that to act without prayer can be presumption, and to think that we can pray that doesn't lead to action is a confusion as well. So we're going to pray, but we need to expect God to lead us uh, in specific and particular ways. Second thing I want to point out, yes, last Sunday, doesn't it seem like a long time ago, but last Sunday there was this um, uh, Super Bowl. <laughs> yes, kind of the great American high holy day. Um, both quarterbacks, admirable guys. I appreciate both of them. Only one could win. And the guy who lost, Jalen Hurts, was asked this question. He said, as a believing Christian, because he's been straightforward about his faith, he said, what are you going to ask God for on Sunday? Here's his answer. He said, well, I usually keep my prayers to myself, but I say, God knows what I pray. Basically, I really lean on him and I try to keep him in the center of everything that I do because I know that without God, I wouldn't be where I am today. Interesting. Super Bowl quarterback, without God, I wouldn't be where I am today. 
I wouldn't be the man I am today without having that faith in him, without having integrity and leadership and diligence and all of those things. But I think the biggest thing, now when I read the biggest thing, I think he's getting to the main point. The biggest thing is that you get so influenced by so much around you, you just want to pray that you're the person that God calls you to be. There could only be two quarterbacks. He just wanted to be the best one quarterback he'd been called to be. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be what God called me to be. Let's make that our prayer this day. Let's turn to the Father. Lord God, thank you that because of what Jesus did on the cross, by your grace, we are your deeply loved, fully adopted children. Not simply creatures, and image bearers, but because of the cross, as we respond to your grace by faith, we are adopted as deeply loved children. And you've made each of us unique and different, called us to different ways of serving and bearing fruit. But I pray this day you would bind us together in Christ to bear fruit to your glory. Use the gifts that you've given, help us know and affirm those. Help us find a place for every gift. But use those to make the gospel of grace compelling, clear, and powerful. Father, we pray that we might discern not only how to restrict violence and its impact, but also how to communicate a gospel that changes hearts of violence. Father, we pray that we might hear the voice of you and your good shepherd, son. And then by that grace, we might act with humility and bravery to bring hope and peace, shalom in the world. Use Heart Awake, we pray, Father. We pray for Watershed and Pastor Aaron as he preaches your word. And uh, next door, Pastor JB Infusion. Uh, for Mission and Pastor Florencia that'll be right here in a few hours proclaiming the gospel in Spanish. Father, send us out. I remember last week, Pastor Darwin, after uh, serving here at Hardwick in the morning, left to preach your good news to the Laotian uh, Christian Reformed Church here in Holland. Continue to send the workers of your grace. We pray, Father, for the people of celebration, that you would, even as you've promised to give us gifts, that we would receive and identify and encourage those gifts in one another, and that together they might be a, a mosaic that makes Jesus clear. Father, we pray for those in our midst who are grieving loss of some sort, some connection, that you would be grace for them in the journey, that day by day, step by step, um, you would be at work, new morning mercies. We pray for those who are sick, Father, and pray by name in the silence for those you know who have particular need right now for physical or emotional or spiritual healing. Father, <clears throat> You've called us to pray 
for those in authority over us. And so uh, this week in our cycle, we pray for the Heart of White Council, the elders and representatives who seek to discern your mind for the body, provide clear, humble servant leadership. We pray for staff as they invest time at our behest, again, to serve and lead. We thank you for Neighbors Plus and that ministry, and for Jan and um, Dawn and Angie, who, again, are key leaders that we've set aside and equipped to lead that part of our ministry. For Becky Visser, ministering with our children, a guide and bless her work. For Nate DeWitt, with our students, middle school and high school. Be strength and encouragement for each member of the leadership teams. Give us strength and encouragement. Father, thank you that this good news that you've given to us is not only for or about us. So we gladly send uh, missionaries. We thank you for the week that David Steenweik has had in South Africa. Give him safe return as their group comes back tomorrow. We pray for the Yoders in Nigeria as this country ex experiences civil unrest and tension, grinding poverty. We pray that you'd make them a light in that darkness, that you'd use them and give them wisdom to know just how to stand and be present and safely. Bless their work translating the scriptures into languages that do not have the Bible. May your word renew and transform those people groups. Father, you've called us to be a people of prayer, and so we pray together with one voice and one heart the prayer that you taught us, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, at this point, I see Miss Janet in the back there. If you'll wave any of our kids, I think grade three on down, is it, that would like to dismiss to the children's focus ministry downstairs. Uh, in the basement, we've got classroom space set aside for you. Um, now's the time to catch up with her, and she'll get you where you need to go. All righty. I'm guessing some of you will discern that I'm having something of a sinus infection at this point. I was told it was a viral sinus infection, so I could almost hardly wait until it becomes uh, bacterial so we can treat it. <laughs> As that goes, it's a tough world out there. Uh, we're preaching through the scripture using that collection called the story. Last week, we saw the beginning of good news, a kingdom in repair, as the 70 years was up and the people of God were released from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem and they began to restore worship. They built the altar, got started uh, kind of with starts and fits to build the temple around it. Well, now we take kind of a reprise and we're going to look at a group of people who didn't go back to Jerusalem, but at that same time. 
It's interesting because in terms of history of the world, we're getting to a point where we have more and more outside references. We, we read about these characters in the Bible, but particularly King Xerxes, who I'll talk about specifically, we have historical record about him uh, from outside the Bible, including through Hollywood. Have you ever seen the movie 300? That was about this king that uh, is part of the book of Esther. Uh, if you read the story, you would have read uh, nine of the ten chapters in Esther. I'm going to highlight one specific piece of that puzzle and we'll uh, dive in from there. Hear the word of God as it begins at Esther chapter 4 verse 12. Now, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. And I'll give you more about just who Esther was and just who Mordecai was. But this is what he sent to Esther. He said, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will then perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will then go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Notice, before she acts, what does she do? Fast and pray. And then she acts. You see how right there in the scripture, these things are put together? A plan of action that grows out of the place of prayer. Verse 17. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for your word that it is life and light. That it is bread that it is where we hear the voice of the Good Shepherd. This day, I pray our hearts might be attuned that just as the Holy Spirit had these events recorded and then preserved across centuries so that now we might unroll the scroll as it were, translate, read, pray, consider, discuss, meditate, and even hear one sinner preach. Open our hearts and minds, illumine them to the light of your word, that we might bear fruit to your glory. Father, guard your people from my brokenness, and yet use um, clay pots like me to make Jesus known, loved, and lifted up. These things we pray in his mighty name, and all of God's people said together, amen, amen. Well, I'll tell you an interesting thing about the book of Esther if you read it. It is this, that God is nowhere to be seen. And I mean that quite literally. God is nowhere in the book of Esther. Now, when you and I hear the word God, the kind of generic English meaning of that is some kind of supreme spiritual being without any real reference to character or the unique activity of that God. So that God could be Jesus or it could be Allah. It could be whatever I choose it to mean, whatever I'm manifesting, as it were. 
So that generic thing is not at all mentioned here. Neither is the position of God. In Psalm 114 verse 1 and 53 verse 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It's as if to say, you couldn't look at this world and not think there is more to it than just cause and effect. And so that kind of generic supreme deity is recognized in the Bible. That's general revelation. It's what we can deduce as we look at the world. It's not the complete message. It can never be complete without special revelation. But it's this sense that Elohim is the Hebrew word, that there is a God, a supreme being, that there's more to this world than just to accident. Well, that word is never used in Esther. It's used in Ecclesiastes. Remember when we went through Ecclesiastes? He's trying to understand wisdom under the sun. And so you read about God, but you never read about the Lord, the name of God, the revelation of God, God as he's made himself known. In Esther, neither the God under the sun that can be deduced from general revelation, observing the world, nor the special revelation, the Lord. Neither of those words, neither of those names are in the book of Esther. God is nowhere. At least that's what it looks like when you read in the surface. And that's very important to understanding what's happening here. When you look at the book of Esther, when you read about these events and what's happening and these personalities and what's going on, you just think, oh my, where is God? So Esther can be a powerful, life-giving book to anyone who finds himself in that moment. Where is God? I feel like I'm on the backside of the other part of the world. I feel like the government is completely corrupt. I feel like me and my people, all those I love, are uh, overwhelmed and oppressed and threatened with um, complete destruction. Well, that's where Esther starts. God is nowhere to be seen. Now let's set some more of this scene. Let's talk about how Esther arrived at being queen. She was not a wealthy daughter of a political figure who then marries into the royal family to bring two nations together. Let me tell you a little about how she came to be in that position. The first thing you've got to learn some about is King Xerxes the Persian, and I call him King Xerxes the Horrible. At this point, we have outside reference. And when you look at the Greek historian Herodotus, called the father of history, who wrote about the Persians, who wrote about Xerxes, who wrote about the Battle of Thermopylae, that's in that movie 300, that wrote about the Battle of Marathon, that all involves Xerxes. And I'll tell you, compared to what Herodotus says about Xerxes, the Bible is very discreet. Xerxes was essentially a violent, drunken pervert. He was that kind of guy. Imagine a historical figure who in his day would outdo Vladimir Putin. This is a dangerous person. 
Now the events of Esther begin with Xerxes and his queen Vashti. After six months of displaying his wealth and power, he takes seven days and invites everyone to a drunken festival. I'll be honest, I picture it must be New Orleans where he is. This is beyond Mardi Gras. I, I've been in New Orleans during Mardi Gras. I can tell you what a seven-day drunk looks like. Careful where you step and don't sit down. <laughs> Chapter 1, verse 7 says, The royal wine was abundant, each guest allowed to drink with no restrictions. Boy, that's a mess. Chapter 1, verse 10, On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, that translates to drunk out of his gourd after a week-long bender. He commanded his servants to bring him Queen Vashti wearing her crown in order to display her beauty to the people. Note the text of the Bible and what she was wearing. Her crown. There's a long tradition of Jewish commentators who make clear in their mind that's all she was wearing. It would be consistent with what we know about Xerxes from this variety of sources, though it's hard to really establish historically this particular thing. But we know this, Vashti says no, that she will not be humiliated and objectified by this pervert in her life. And she says no public humiliation by a husband. This is not God's plan. She says no. Xerxes blows up. He's furious, so he gathers his, get this one, all-male cabinet and decides to put her away. Now he has to get sober, calm down, and look for a new queen. So enters Hadassah, also known as dun dun dun, dun Esther, one of the exiles carried to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar and offered, orphaned, now being raised by a cousin. Esther shows up as an orphan. Something to note here, she and her cousin, who would be her guardian and care for her, moved not to Jerusalem when the people went back, but they moved east, away from Jerusalem. It's more like Jonah. They went the wrong way to the capital of the Persians, to Susa. Mordecai and Esther are people in the wrong place at the wrong time. They're going the wrong way. Well, Xerxes has to find a new queen, and so he puts on a Miss Universe pageant, if you will, gathers as many women as he wants, he's got that power, gives them a year of tra treatment and training, and then interviews them one by one. After that year of preparation, we come to this. Now, we can be certain in that interview, Xerxes looked at each of these women, one per day, and that he probably questioned them. And we can be certain too that he, see this was not some reality TV show. I found my wife, will you marry me? This was a king who had life and death, who said you exist for my 
benefit and desires. I want you, I want to test you. This is brutal, awful, wicked stuff. This is the way the Persians were. I mean, this is Jeffrey Epstein, centuries earlier. Imagine. Friends, one of the things the gospel helps us do as we read the scripture is realize that whatever world we live in, whether it's the world with Esther or it's the world of the 21st century United States, that this world at this moment is not as God intended it. Neither is it as he will leave it. You know, if you think that Esther's world is, oh, it's just like that, and God works in it, you've missed a point. Esther's world is broken and evil and corrupt. He works in that. In the same way, if you look around us and say, oh, we're doing pretty good. Sure, I'd like my candidate, or sure, I want my kids to get into that school, or sure, I want this stock exchange. Oh, no, friends. This world at this moment is not as God intended or as he will leave it. Just because God can work in this world for good, this is one of the promises of the scripture, Genesis 50, 20. Do you remember Joseph who says to his brothers, though you meant it for evil, his brothers meant to do what to Joseph? Evil. He meant to do evil, though you meant it for evil, God worked it for good. So God will take the evil that we encounter, even that we choose and do, and he will work it for good. But friends, evil is evil, and God will overthrow it. It will be gone. Xerxes was an evil ruler. It should be no surprise that Persia would eventually collapse in a world created by the Lord of the Bible, Yahweh, such evil will never prosper. If you set up a government like Xerxes did, the cascade of consequences will lead to destruction. It always has, it always will. The world at this moment, even when it's beautiful like a blue sky and shining sun and warming temperature, we see bits of beauty that point to a greater beauty. But this world is not as God intended or as he will leave it. Ponder that. Because you see, the next thing that happens in the book of Esther is the script gets flipped. The story adds a new character. There's this guy, Haman. He's raised to leadership position by Xerxes, chapter three and following. He gets into a conflict with Mordecai who is taking care of Esther. Mordecai uses his position um, to, I'm sorry, Haman, Haman, Haman uses his position to plot destruction against Mordecai. And suddenly all the Jews are the subject of destruction by the Persian emperor through Haman. It's almost a precursor of the Holocaust. Mordecai hears about this and he goes to his cousin, to Esther, and encourages perhaps leans on her to help prevent this from happening. She's now the queen. She made it. She won that vile beauty contest. So she now is in a position. Up to this point, Esther's been keeping her Jewish heritage under wraps. It's a well-kept secret. 
Through the story, the tensions build to outrage in Haman, and he prepares to torture Mordecai. He prepares a 75-foot stake to impale him on in his backyard. Such a neighbor. Esther hatches a plan at Mordecai's behest. They pray about it, and they hatch a plan. They're going to throw the party of a lifetime. It'll be the completion of Haman's lifetime, we'll see. But the script gets flipped when suddenly King Xerxes has insomnia. He can't sleep one night, and so, and you got to love the irony of this. So Xerxes, I can't sleep. Will you get out the history of my reign and government and read it to me? How would you like to have the history of everything you did read to you in an effort to put you to sleep? That's what Xerxes is up to here. But in the course of listening to that, in hopes of getting to sleep, boring himself to death with what he's done, he hears about an assassination attempt that was uh, halted against him. And who should be the person who did that, prevented the assassination attempt? It was this fellow Mordecai. So, the next morning, he gets up, King Xerxes, and he talks to his key leadership guy, um, Haman, and he says, what should we do for someone we want to honor? Now, it's interesting. Haman goes, well, who could he be talking about besides me? So he comes up with a plan, new wheels, let's get him a chariot, new threads, we'll get new clothes, and let's throw a parade. You see, here's Mardi Gras again, and we'll put him as the king of the Mardi Gras crew. Little does he know, as he's now invited to this party from Esther, that he's going to be found out by Xerxes through Esther that he wants to kill all the Jews. Xerxes suddenly discovers that Haman wants to kill all his wife's family. He says, oh no, can't happen. Haman, in a drunken effort to get Esther to vouch for him, stumbles on her. Xerxes gets even more upset and sends him out to be killed. Mordecai is raised to a key position of leadership, and now he gets to write new laws so that the Jews can, A, not only defend themselves, but kill a large portion of the population and be free. <laughs> wow. Haman has the party that ends his lifetime. Haman is caught up with himself thinking that the king is thinking about him. But as you look at all of this mess, this treachery, this murder, this corrupt government, is this what God wants? Is there something to celebrate in Haman's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day? There is not. That's a reflection of brokenness, not good things. It's not good when bad things happen to bad people. It's sad even though they're bad. And then look at Haman, I'm sorry, Mordecai, who takes revenge of the Jews on the other people. There's murder in the streets. You've got to see blood and death. Where is God in this? Would the Lord revealed in the Bible, would he want that? Friends, I think if we forget the gospel, we often go looking for heroes in the stories of the Bible. Who's the good guy? Who's wearing the white hat? Who should we act like? Who in these stories is a model of behavior? Friends, don't 
take Mordecai as a model of good behavior. People died. God used them. But remember, God is at work in this broken world. There are certainly moments of inspiration in Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai stood up to Haman rather than bow down to him. You can read about that. He figured out a way to use the system to keep the Jewish people from facing a Persian Holocaust. That's good. Esther herself, she risked her life to get access to Xerxes and make this happen. Thankful for that, she risked her life. She was also able, amazingly, to navigate the trauma of events that got her to that position, the wicked, evil events that got her to that position. But by the end of the day, the point is not to go and act like Mordecai and Esther. Just like Xerxes and Haman, those two people are wicked, broken people rebelling against the Lord, but so too Mordecai and Esther, though certainly less repulsive, to us in their brokenness. They're falling pretty short of the examples that God calls us to for moral virtue and obedience. So what is the point? The point is that in a broken and messed up world, whether scheming drunks, vengeful power brokers, or traumatized people who are in the wrong place at the wrong time for the wrong reason, God is at work. God is at work in broken places with broken people. The book of Esther starts with this. God is nowhere. And by the end of the book, you can look back and see his fingerprints everywhere. Even through evil, God is at work that many might be saved. We can see his fingerprints everywhere. And this is where it gets in. Interesting, friends. It begins with God is nowhere, but it points us to see God's fingerprints everywhere and then to discover that God is now here. And so whatever your circumstances right now, I want to tell you, you may look around and feel like God is nowhere. I'm left to my own designs. I, I sinned in getting here. I've heard people say that. Oh no, it was my mistake in getting me into this position. I have to work my way out. Friends, I want to tell you, you may feel like God is nowhere, but Esther wants us to know because it points to the very end of the story that God is now here. You see, that's the gospel. It's not go and do the best you can in a broken world. It's God himself has come. He's entered into our broken world. He's taken upon himself the consequences and motivations that led to that brokenness. And he offers us his righteousness, his power, his life. And in that life, we're called to go out with him to make the story known to begin to live into all that God wants to do in this world, it won't be complete until he returns. For now, we see evil for what it is and do the best we can to resist it, to change it. But that's only because first, God has made himself known to us and in us and through us. Friends, even if your world looks like God is nowhere to be seen, you need to realize Esther reminds us that God is now here. He is at work. Friends, 
<clears throat> we hardly see the fullness by the end of Esther, but where you and I are in history, we can look and we can see that that day would come. There would be a Christmas. And then there would be a Palm Sunday. There would be a Good Friday, horror of horrors, when righteousness itself was murdered by human wickedness. But there comes a resurrection. Emmanuel, God with us. God is here. Because the end of the story is itself the person of Jesus. You know, in a moment, <clears throat> I'm going to invite each of you to come because Jesus is here and you need to come on his terms, not yours, but know he invites each of us in our brokenness to come and receive what only he can offer, life and hope and transformation. Let me pray for you. <laughs> Father in heaven, we thank you that even in a broken world, there is light and life and hope. Thank you that what we see in the book of Esther, a situation that can start as if God is nowhere, but end with your fingerprints all over the narrative. We thank you that the story goes on and that one day there'll be a child born and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, that he will live, that he will teach, that he will proclaim the kingdom. And then horror of horrors, he himself will be turned over and crucified. Father, there was three days of silence and fear and brokenness, and then unbelievable, confusing wonder at an empty tomb. These are the things that shape our life and that give us hope. These are the things that we connect to with this sacrament. Be present with us now, beautiful Savior, to make Jesus known to us in deep and powerful ways. We thank you for your marvelous word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Before we take the sacrament, I'm going to ask that we just join our hearts in singing together. Beautiful Savior, you can stand.
Be seated if you would. Jesus is brighter than all that the world offers. As we gather at that table, it's good to remember. I want to use question number 80 uh, from the Heidelberg Catechism to uh, set our hearts to what God is doing here. Let us confess together. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. This sets before us the great truth that it is Jesus who sets this table, Jesus who invites. In a moment, I'll ask you to come down the center aisle to take a strip of bread, to dip a portion of it into the cup, to partake, and then head back to your seat. We encourage families to partake together. We encourage uh, parents to help navigate with their children the meaning and power of this. This night begins, we read from the Apostle Paul, He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy or inappropriate manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We extend the invitation I like to do for communion um, based on who Jesus is and how he extends. We do not come here because we've earned our way. There's a fence for people who come on their own merit. But there's an invitation to people who want to look to Jesus for their hope, for their life, for their forgiveness, and for their uh, transformation. Do you see the difference? In examining ourselves, we ought to come to see our need for Jesus and come on his terms. That's what it means to come in an appropriate way. Jesus extends the invitation saying, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Stop living in your own power. Stop living for your own sake. Stop living behind your own mask. Come, receive what God is giving. That's what the table of God is like. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, take this which is very simple, this bread and this cup, for that's all the world sees. But we thank you for a, a, a dimension of reality that only faith can begin to grasp. That here by the promise of your word and the presence of your Holy Spirit, you meet your people. So this day, take this which is very simple, 
and by your presence meet us so that truly our lives might move from God may seem nowhere, past seeing simply your fingerprints to celebrating conversation, relationship, the presence of the living God. Father, meet us by your promise. For we make our prayer not in our name, but in the name of Jesus, the risen one. And all of God's people said together, amen. Amen. I'll ask those who will be uh, distributing the sacrament, if you would join me up here. Good. Can I, can I get one more? Ron, why don't you get here and take the cup? Yeah, Lee, let me put you, or Tom, yeah, let me, I'll put Tom to work. You take one and you take the other. Take one and <clears throat> then... You'll take, you'll take bread, you'll dip in the cup, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Come, all God's people.
Pray. Father, you've loved us long before we loved you. So thank you that as we enter into that true love, that you affect us, you transform us from glory into glory. It's a journey. It's a step at a time. But may this be the next step as your work continues to be birthed and matured in us. We thank you for the work of Jesus applied to us by the promise of your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. Bind us together as your people, an inviting and welcoming expression of the gospel that we might see hope and justice and healing and kindness and truth established in this your world that Jesus died to redeem. Come, Lord Jesus, quickly. You are Lord of all nations. You are our hope in every moment. We make our prayer in that mighty name. And all of God's people said together, amen. Let's close with the closing verse of beautiful Savior, number 17, beautiful Savior, Lord of the nations. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom. Amen and amen.